It's great to be in the house of the Lord today, isn't it? With each and every one of you, I'm reminded this morning, sound like a broken record now because I say this all the time, but reminded of the great pleasure it is not just to worship alone, that I don't practice my faith in isolation, but I get to be in community with each and every one of you. I say that to us today because I think the story that we will read this morning invites us perhaps to an imagination, to a recognition of the times when our eyes have perhaps been closed to the simple truths that Scripture might offer us. So as we read this text today, I would invite us to open our imaginations. This story, a parable, a parable known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably one of the most well-known pieces of Scripture throughout the world. Transcends even even Christian circles um, and has transcended into language of everyday vocabulary for people. So I think it invites us to a a place of challenge where perhaps stories that are familiar to us can sometimes fall on deaf ears. So as I was reading and reflecting on this text this week, my prayer was first and foremost that the text would speak to me in a new way. That I would not come to it with my own presumptions about what it means and what it doesn't mean, but I, like those that heard as Jesus shared this scripture with them, as Jesus invited them to this story, sat there and opened their minds to perhaps a new way of thinking about their place in the world. So I'd like to read this text for us today, found in Luke chapter 10, um, and I'd invite you to respond here at the end. So let's read from Luke chapter 10 this morning. It reads like this, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down to that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. 
I heard a story once that uh, I think maybe some of us can resonate with. Does anybody have that intuition in themselves that when you, when you see something that perhaps somebody wants you to buy for them, you get this phrase in your mind, I can build that. Anybody have that intuition? I think my father's a, in construction, and so I think I inherited that gene. One time Michaela came to me with this piece of artwork that she wanted to order on Etsy that was just like really cool. And I, to be honest, I wanted it for our house too, but it had this stubborn intuition. I can build that. This is in the first year of our marriage that I think this project probably transcended the entire first year of our marriage because I was determined that I wasn't going to spend whatever amount they were charging on that website for this thing that I could build for assuredly like 30 bucks at home. But the amount of hours that maybe I spent doing the project, well, we don't talk about that because now it's hanging on the wall and I think, I built that, right? But it made me think of a story this week as I was, I was just sitting in our living room looking at this piece of art that's on, that hangs on our wall now, and it makes me chuckle when I think about it. But I heard this story once of a father whose son came home and asked him to build him a treehouse. Anybody have a treehouse growing up in their backyard? It was like my favorite thing of all time. We had a treehouse, and I would go out there all the time. It probably was only like this high off the ground, but at the time when I was a kid, it felt just like three stories tall. But this son comes to his father and says, Dad, will you build me a treehouse? Because he had been to his friend's house, and his friend, of course, had a treehouse. Maybe some of you who are parents kind of know this annoyance. They're like, but my friend has it. So, well, it doesn't mean that you need it. But he comes home nonetheless and says, Dad, I want a treehouse. And his dad, much like many of us who have this same intuition, decided he didn't need some professional to do this project. He didn't need somebody who was just going to overcharge him for a project that he could sure do himself. And so he decides, yeah, I'll build it. And so not having any tools or any skills or any of the materials, takes his first trip to the hardware store, goes, buys first round of tools, comes home with some lumber and begins the project. Weeks go by, and you could hear from in the house frustrating cries, uh, maybe times when he would swing the hammer a little bit too hard and hit his thumb instead of the nail. But one day the son walked out and with his glove and his ball, and he said, hey, dad, will you pause from the treehouse and you want to play catch for a little while? You know, his dad in the middle of the project looked at him and said, hey, maybe later I don't have time because I'm in the middle of this project. I have this thing that I have to do, and so his son went back inside. And so then the, the months passed. Every time you would look out and see this dad working on this project, he was either engrossed in a video of a how-to, of how to do this new step of the project, or he was at the hardware store buying more materials. But then as the months passed, the day finally came when the project was completed. This treehouse was there to rival all other treehouses. It was going to be the envy of every kid on the block. And so he, the dad goes into the house so excited to share this new project with the son, walks up to his room and finds it empty with a note on the bed that just reads, you looked busy, I'm at my friend's house playing in his treehouse. And I was paused with kind of the irony of this story for a moment because as observers, we look there and we think, oh, well, like, of course, if the dad would have just paid attention to what the son had asked him to do, perhaps the story would have gone differently. But as if we were honest with ourselves, there are times in our lives where perhaps we get caught up in the work that we are doing, especially work with good intention, work that is lined with the most beautiful vision of what the world could be. For those of you that are in professions that bring you a lot of life, you know this temptation. 
when the stress gets a little high, when the workload gets intense. We convince ourselves that the amount of work that we do perhaps outputs the amount of value that we bring to the world. And so when disruptions and distractions might come our way, we're often inclined to prioritize the work that is in front of us instead of the work that perhaps lies without us seeing. Perhaps the disruptions that invite us to a different way of thinking. And so I think even for the most selfless of work, work that is lined with the best intentions, and perhaps even for us in the church, work that is lined with kingdom-oriented intentions, can keep our eyes from seeing that which lies right in front of us. This story has a couple key components that are really important for us. I think probably if we went around the room, we could all either quote this story or tell of a time when we heard this story and how deeply embedded it was. I remember when I was a kid and we had the flannel graphs, if any of you remember that, and we had this Good Samaritan story that was told time and time and time and time again. Like I could tell this story frontwards and backwards and sideways and forwards and all over the place, but what I found that those sorts of stories, as I alluded to earlier, can sometimes keep us from seeing the subtleties that are offered to us. And so the first detail that matters for us is not so much the parable in and of itself, but the person who asks the parable. As we talk about often, when we read throughout Scripture, details matter. These stories weren't just uh, written or told in isolation, but they were told in real places in history that had real cultural implications, asked by people who had real baggage, who had real backgrounds, real presumptions about the way the world should be. And so this man, the text tells us a lawyer, probably a better translation would be a scribe. Uh, when we think lawyer, not like in the way that we think about those today, but it was more accurately described as a scribe comes to Jesus. Scribes were really significant figures in the religious community. Their responsibilities included things like copying of manuscripts. This job, we cannot undersell how important this job was in this time. They didn't have the printing press that would be developed hundreds and hundreds of years later. The mass production of written material was not the norm. And so they had people that wrote these texts. As they had scripture written out on these scrolls, they wanted to make copies of them. And so this almost divine-like responsibility was given to people that would look at the text and write it onto a new scroll. History would tell us that those that did this job took this role so seriously that if any one mistake was made, they scrapped the entire scroll and started over. There's no eraser, there's no whiteout, there's no going back. They started over because they recognized the importance of the job that they had before them. His responsibilities also would have included the teaching of the Torah and general work in the temple. It's worth noting this man's job description because I think it helps us to better understand the question that he asked Jesus. I think hindsight can give us a poor understanding of Scripture sometimes because we can look at this man who asked this question of Jesus and think we already know how he missed it, how he got the question wrong. And as perhaps people have done for generations, we can mock characters in Scripture for not understanding but I think stories like this invite us to a place where perhaps we can humble ourselves and ask, would not we have asked the same question of Jesus? For this man cared deeply about his faith. He cared deeply about 
what was being taught. This man who had come onto the scene that was come to be known as Jesus, the one who began to teach scripture in a new and exciting way, both probably excited this scribe, but also made him a little nervous because he wanted to make sure what was being taught was true. And so he comes to Jesus asking this question, I would guess, out of a place of genuine desire to understand. Because he not only had the responsibility to copy this scripture, but also teach it to others. So the question, can good and meaningful and seemingly kingdom-oriented work, can it get in the way of us seeing God's true invitation? I think turning back to the text, the scribe, presumably out of a genuine care to understand, as he bore this responsibility of teaching, asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think what's being asked here essentially as we read throughout the Gospel of Luke, as he says, I hear you talking about this new sort of life, one that you alluded to chapters earlier, a life where poor are exalted, remember in the Beatitudes, where the hungry are filled, where those who weep would be brought to joy, a new life that you have shown through liberation, as we saw two chapters previously, as he healed the man in Gerasene. The healings that would occur later on in Jesus' life. The feeding of the 5,000 people that happened one chapter earlier. This man would have been aware of all of these things that Jesus had done. So when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is very aware of the things that Christ has been doing. And so ask in a very genuine way, I hear you talking about these new sorts of things, and I have seen you perform miracles for this new way of life. How can I make that happen in my world? So Jesus, being the good Jewish rabbi that he was, asks him the question that he should ask him. What is written in the law? From a young age, Jewish children were expected to have the whole Torah memorized. How many of you have the whole Torah memorized? I don't know. Sometimes I forget even like a verse as I'm reading it, to be honest. <laughs> and then later on in their childhood, they were to have the rest of the Old Testament memorized. Because these writings were deeply embedded in the fabric of their society. And so this scribe quotes the text that every young Jewish child would have quoted. In Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, where God asks them, what must we do to live in this life that God offers? They would all have responded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. We find other places in the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy 11 where God asked these people to write these texts on their doorposts of their house and on their gates. It's a reflection of the way that the people group that Jesus was born into deeply understood that their faith was not some auxiliary reality, something that didn't have anything to say about their everyday comings and goings, but was deeply embedded in the way that they lived their lives in every facet of their interactions. In this story, it also matters how Jesus answers him. I think the man's response is genuine, and for all intents and purposes, it is correct. Jesus even commends him and says that this was the fundamental answer for the religious community. But one detail worth noting, I think that's interesting in the way that he quotes the Shema, is that it reminds us back to what we talked about several weeks ago in this translation of the text that's been brought to us in English, where it talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. 
Oftentimes we get misunderstood about what the intention of that text is as we translate this word throat as soul. The Hebrew word nephesh, which was related in the Shemaind in Deuteronomy 6, really better reflects an understanding that the Hebrews had that to love the Lord your God with all of themselves came from every facet of their being. And so I say all of this to emphasize what I think this text invites us to remember this morning is that when we often gather for Sunday worship services such as these, when we meet for small groups, when we gather in different ministries, when we serve in different contexts, those are but small pieces of our everyday interactions that we might have. Those are but small facets. And we can do ourselves a disservice when we section those things off, failing to understand how they can influence every other interaction in our lives. See, Jesus commends his answer, noting that living as the Shema would suggest, that loving the Lord your God with all of ourselves is the key to unlocking this new sort of life. And I wish the story stopped there. I wish the scribe would say, oh yeah, I got it, let's move on, you're good. But he asked this follow-up question, which I think is the core of what this text invites us to consider today. He asked this question, who is my neighbor? A question that begins to reveal perhaps the scribe's fear that the invitation of Jesus might pull him to places where he does not want to go. So he quickly backpedals in hopes that he might get the conversation back on track to a place where he feels comfortable. But this is where the story gets interesting. Jesus tells this story of a Jewish man traveling this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This long and notoriously dangerous journey where there were narrow, rocky portions, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho that is still known today as the Way of Blood. You can look it up online. It's a fascinating piece of historical detail because this road was not so wide as we might perhaps some roads today might be, but a road that on one side had sharp cliffs up and on the other side sharp cliffs down and was probably about this wide. This detail will matter for us here in just a moment. But what's surprising about this text is that this man is attacked by robbers, which was actually pretty commonplace on a road such as that. But then what happens next is as by chance, there happens to be a priest coming down on the very same road. And then later a Levite who came down on the same road. Both religious officials, both people caught up in the important work of what it meant to uphold God themselves, but also in their communities. Presumably people that are headed from, Jerusalem to Jer to, from Jericho to Jerusalem to perform religious duties. Everything counted on them arriving on time. They were to preach that sermon that Sunday, and if they didn't show up on time, would church even happen? They had to make sure that they were there to serve the coffee on Sunday morning, because if they weren't there, would church even happen? They had their eyes fixed on the responsibility that they had in front of them, as well-intentioned as it might have been when they come across the road to a man who is in need. They're blinded, so consumed by the task, so consumed by what they have not just in front of them but beyond them, that they cannot help, as the text says, walk to the other side. Why this detail matters for us about the width of the road is that there's irony in the way that Jesus tells the story. For I remember as a kid seeing this story kind of animated out on the flannel graph for me is that 
the Levite and the priest really did go to the other side of the road. They changed lanes. They got onto the other sidewalk so they didn't have to see anymore. But history would tell us that they saw this man. Presumably, maybe stepped on this man. Intentionally chose to ignore this man in front of them because they could not help but see him because he would have blocked the road in front of them. We might have expected one of these religious leaders to stop and show love, but as we have noted, they needed to keep themselves ceremoniously clean, particularly since they were headed to Jerusalem. So at this point in the story, Jesus' audience probably would expect what's to come next. They would expect a simple Jewish man to walk. We've already had two religious authorities, so now just a simple, ordinary, everyday person would come, and they would save the day. But you could almost hear the gasps in Jesus' audience as the third character he introduces is not somebody that they would expect, but a Samaritan. History will tell us then and still today, deep, wounded cultural divide exists between these groups of people. And so Jesus' use of this character in the story is intentional. It's on purpose to disrupt their imagination for a moment, to pull them out of a place where they considered that their work in the name of the Lord took primary place in the religious community. That all the work that they were called to do took primary place over anything else that might choose to disrupt that. It's even more ironic because one chapter earlier, James and John wanted to ask God to rain down fire from heaven on an unreceptive Samaritan village. And so as the parable comes to an end, he asked the religious expert which man was the neighbor to the one in need. The man can't even bring himself to utter the word Samaritan, so he says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus, knowing the tension that is in the room, gives these simple yet profound words, go and do likewise. I think this text in its simplicity offers something really important to us today. I don't have much to add to this text because I think in some ways it speaks almost for itself, but here's a few thoughts I would offer to us today. I think lesson one is this. What Jesus is getting at is that there's this posture of neighborliness, what it means to be neighbor to those in need. And I think it's fascinating that he uses the one that they would have least expected and perhaps even disdained for being used in the story. This parable simply identifies our neighbors in a way that opens our eyes to recognize that the road is very narrow. Though when we walk throughout our lives, I think we have this presumption or maybe do ourselves a disservice to think about our own compassion for the world to say these things like this. Well, if I interact, if that day comes, I'll be ready. You know, if somebody ever came into my purview, if I ever was aware of somebody in need, I think this story invites us to better language. For the road was narrow. Jesus could have used any road to tell this story. I think with intention chooses to use this road to remind us that it is not if, but it is when. When will the day come? Perhaps the day has already arrived when those who are in need are right in front of us. 
perhaps like the Levite and the priest. There are moments in our lives where we are so caught up in the work that we are doing that we choose to ignore those who are in front of us. I think this temptation manifests itself in the church. I'll confess to you, even as one who's been in youth ministry for a very, very long time, that there are times when the work that I do, the great work that I get to do, the joy that it brings me, the the understanding that I know that what we do not only impacts today, but will impact eternity, the work that I do can get in the way of the people the work is for. I think for many of us that serve in capacities like this, we understand this tension. As we talk about our food bank ministry, something that is deeply embedded into who we are here at Skyview, a really, really important ministry. We're, re- we're, we're reaching a capacity limit in our ability to serve families. We're at, I think, 12 hampers a week right now and want to grow that to even more. And while we say, praise the Lord, that we are able to think about doing that. There's also struggle and temptation for all of us in places like that to primarily focus on the growth, primarily focus on what that will make of us rather than the opportunity that it might bring. I recognize this tension and dynamic each and every Tuesday. We, my wife and I are on a team about once a, once a month, and there's a rhythm to it. There's kind of a, a, a way that the evening usually goes, and there's a lot of work to be done, not a lot of space for disruptions, to be honest. But sometimes people come in in need. Sometimes people show up early. Sometimes people really aren't there to receive groceries, but they just need an ear. This disruption at times can feel like a burden. It can feel like it's getting in the way of the work that we have been called to. Don't you understand that I'm here to pack these groceries so I can help feed your family? It's in moments like that where God comes to me and reminds me of stories like this. That our mission as a church Our mission as followers of Jesus cannot be so fixated on the work that we feel like we are called to do that it closes our eyes to the people we do the work for. So as we consider our own journey, our own walking of the road, let us be honest about the people that are in front of us, the need that exists around us, the recognition, the boldness that it takes to be honest about what God calls us to. And I think finally, what this text reminds us, as we have said time and time again, is that our faith is not something disconnected from our everyday lives. This man quoted the Shema text in Deuteronomy 6, that continues to be a significant text for us as followers of God. A simple yet profound reminder that moments like this, where we gather as a church family, moments in small groups, moments where we serve, moments where we interact in this capacity, are simply a taste of what is to come, are simply a small piece of what God is calling us to. And I feel convicted when I read this story 
to ask how perhaps I have prioritized my own comfort, my own place in the story, and denied the recognition that there are those around us greatly in need, greatly in need of those that would not see disruption as a burden, but would see disruption as opportunity. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan has been a neighbor by loving his enemy as he would love himself. If we are to love those who proclaim the love of God with our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and with our mind, we are called then to do the same in this world. So we invite the worship team to come forward. We reflect on the simple truths of Scripture. There are complex, deep, beautiful nuances to Scripture that we study often. Yet there are also stories such as these. Stories that sit with us. Stories that invite us to perhaps consider our place in a story. We can always be tempted to place ourselves at the center. I want to be the man that's beaten on the side of the road sometimes. I want to be the one that gets served. Or, you know, I, sometimes I want to be the Samaritan, the one that has the boldness to stop and look around. Or, if we're honest, sometimes I want to be Jesus in the story, the one who already understands and tells the story to those who don't. But I think stories like this invite me to a place where I consider how perhaps have I been the one that walking the road has closed my eyes to those around me. So even as we dismiss here as a church, the simple invitation for us is this. We gather in this space, sometimes as individuals. We all come here with our own stories, our own perspectives, our own baggage even. We come in these doors and then we leave out them by ourselves. We sit with the people that we know. We talk to the people that we have connection with. Yet I think the invitation for us is to ask that God would open our eyes to the things around us that perhaps might stretch us, might pull us to a new way of thinking so that as we continue to walk the road as followers of Christ, that we would have better eyes to see that which is in front of us.